0: Our second reading is from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter two. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit,
1: No one starts life wanting to be average. Every kid, at least at that early age, dreams of a vision of greatness. They dream of something that is up here, and it's whatever their culture, their little kid culture, values and upholds. They want to be an all star or a pop star, they want to be our supermodel or a superhero. They now want to be a YouTuber or a gamer, which anybody over 30, maybe not, doesn't know what that is, but that, that's actually an actual career. You can make millions of dollars. And so there's a famous aspect. There's a, there's a, here's what we uphold. Here's where the money is. Here's what we love and value. That's the good life. That's the great life. You want life? Go for that. Every kid starts out with dreams of greatness, not of averageness. But eventually, as adults, it gets worked out of us. We give up on unrealistic dreams. But even as adults, we're still seeking some version of greatness. That is, we want the good life, life to the full. We want to matter. We want to be significant. In the ancient world in which Jesus entered, the definition of greatness was seen in two main characters, one that predated Jesus by 300 years and one that was around in his early days. The first was Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was 300 years before Jesus. He became uh, the king of Macedonia. His father was king. He became king of Macedonia at age 20. He spread through wars the conquering of his kingdom till he was king of all of Greece, and then spread the, the uh, Greek empire far to the east, all the way to the edges of India. He was, by the time he died at 33, the the king of the known world. He was considered divine. That was greatness. Around the time of Jesus, Caesar Augustus ruled the Roman world and did very much the same thing. He spread the empire of Rome from that tiny little boot to cover all of the known world from the Mediterranean all around. His empire was vast and he was great. If he wanted to tax somebody, he taxed them just to be his subjects. If he wanted to execute somebody, he did so with impunity. He had total power, total authority, all honor, all status. That was greatness. It's in light of that view of greatness, the Greek and Roman ideal of Augustus and of Alexander, that vision of greatness and glory, that the gospel comes in as deeply subversive and utterly countercultural, as N.T. Wright once said. The gospel's vision of the true and great life is not not greatness and glory for you, but actually the the way that it's described in Philippians 2 is unity. In Philippians 2, Paul is writing to the church in Philippi and he talks about his vision for them. In verse 2 he says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. One in spirit and purpose. He calls them to have the same love, which literally means to give up your personal ambitions. It's not I love this and you love that. It's we love the same thing together. Surrender personal ambitions. Now, this is a hard one in Northern Virginia. We are ambitious people. And look, I, I, worked, with, um, I worked with Young Life in a rural county in Virginia, Madison County, And I've lived here in Northern Virginia. And one of the things I noted was the difference between teenagers in both places. Um, I was disappointed in the lack of ambition in teenagers in Madison County. Kids that were very sharp, very smart, would get to their senior year, spring of their senior year, hey, what are you going to do afterwards? And they would say, I don't know. And even though they probably could have headed off to college, they had no drive, ambition. That wasn't the pressure around them, at least not when I was working in Young Life there 25 years ago. Around here, it's the exact opposite, right? It doesn't matter whether you get pressed by your parents. You feel the pressure to succeed, to achieve. The ambition pushes you. You've got to get higher, better, more. And I, for a long time, have wrestled with that because I I kind of prefer this area to that Madison County area. I want to see kids, you know, make the most of themselves. But if I'm really being honest about what the gospel says... The gospel says no to all personal ambition. Now, it doesn't say don't work hard. It certainly does. Work hard. Use your gifts. Pour out your life. Pursue the best, but not for yourself. For God's glory and the good of others. And I don't think ambition is quite the word for that. In fact, what Paul talks about here is, is a oneness of soul, which is basically not that every one of us has the same opinion, but that we're all pulling in the same direction. We're on the same team. I mean, you see that in any successful sports endeavor that's a team sport, and certain sports are more necessary to have a good team. It's the whole team has to work together towards the same goal. That's what he's talking about. I want you my church, people, to live pulling in the same direction, the same goal, having the same ambition. God. And underneath of this is the idea that we are made not just for ourselves but for relationships. We are relational beings. Eugene Peterson put it this way, we are not ourselves by ourselves. You can't even enjoy a sunset or a song most fully until you've shared it with somebody else. It completes the joy. We are relational beings. We are made, wired, to be in purposeful community of deep, loving friendships. And that's why Paul calls the Philippian church and us to be that sort of community. You want to know greatness in life? Live for that. Seek that. But we, 21st century Americans, most of us here, are modern individualists. We live in a modern individualistic culture. We have a need for independence. I don't want anyone to have a say in my life. We seek our identity on our own. And so we are constantly ambitious for ourselves or guarding ourselves. And we keep people at arm's distance. Ultimately, we need the gospel to transform and empower us so we can love well, live the truly great life. Paul writes in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, the challenge of living that like-minded love. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves. Looking, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. That phrase, uh, selfish ambition or vain conceit, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, is empty glory. Empty glory. It is a the thing. The word glory is a very biblical term. Okay, glory means weightiness. It means an immovable mover. It's the thing that shoves everything else out of its way. When we live for ourselves, our glory is empty. There's only one truly weighty one, according to the Bible. It's God, the Creator. We are made to find our weightiness, our matter, our purpose, in light of Him. In fact, the Bible talks about in creation that we are made in the image of God, right? We are made to reflect God, the God of glory, and to experience harmony with Him and therefore with one another. We're made to derive our weightiness and purpose from him. But of course, in the garden, you go from Genesis 2, 1 and 2, when God creates, to Genesis 3, when Satan comes and says, hey, you should eat of the tree. He's just afraid that you're going to be like him. And so they eat of the tree to seek their glory on their own apart from God. And we all do that. But any greatness, any purpose, any identity not built on God will not be great enough to satisfy you. True greatness, Paul lays out in this passage, true greatness was on the cross. He writes in verses 5 through 8, or in 6 through 8, Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, and being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he, Christ, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is one of the most powerful phrases in all of Scripture. It's part of a hymn that was part of the early church. And Paul is citing it here to cite the gospel. Here's the good news of Jesus Christ. He, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be used for his own advantage. This is one of this is a very complicated phrase, but it's, it's got a lot of weight behind it. What it's saying is Jesus was and is God. But in his humanity, he did not use his divinity for his own good or benefit. He didn't use his power, his position, his status for his own benefit. Jesus doesn't do miracles for himself. And Paul is citing that to say, now you do the same. Imagine that. All of your resources, if you have connections, if you have money, if you have a good career, if you're really good relationally, All of your resources, all of your power, all of your status, always used for others, never for yourself. Everything you have for God's glory and the good of others. Jesus, it says in verses seven and eight, humbled himself by becoming a servant even to death on the cross. For God's glory and our good. In Gethsemane, Jesus accepts the Father's will. He says, take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he obeys the Father. He's living for the glory of the Father and his purposes. And on the cross, he restrains his power. He's up there hanging on the cross, right? The creator, sustainer, judge of the universe, and the very people who are crucifying him depend on him to keep them alive. He restrains the power to annihilate them for their good. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. He could have, but he doesn't use his power for his own advantage. That is true greatness, and our true greatness is going to be found in serving God's purposes in Christ-like sacrifice and love for one another. You know, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, radically redefines what matters and why we matter. Every culture, every culture has always assigned value to people, who's up and who's down, who's in, who's out, that sort of thing. The gospel says this, everyone's out. but anybody can come in, because it says everyone is sinful, equally sinful, equally needy, equally out. But through faith in Christ, anyone can be forgiven. Anyone can come in and be accepted. Anyone can experience the love of God. In the traditional world that Jesus and Paul lived in, power and status were the culture's values, In our modern culture, it's freedom and independence. But whether it's power and status or freedom and independence, any culture's values divide people. The gospel, only the gospel, enables relationships of humility and selflessness and loving unity that transcends our natural instincts and desires. Paul because of the gospel is able to call the Philippians to something that nobody in their culture would have thought was very good which is humility. In verses 3 and 4 he writes, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I was reading it out of the ESV there. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In humility, value others above yourselves. Humility is a key part of what God wants to unleash in us relationally. The true great life, according to the gospel, is humility. And humility, as many of you have heard, is is not thinking less of yourself. In fact, my experience has been those who feel the most worthless, who who feel the, the least about themselves, are the least humble people. Because they're thinking of themselves all the time. Whether you love yourself a little too much or hate yourself, you probably are always thinking about yourself. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's as I think C.S. Lewis said, it's thinking of yourself less because you're thinking of others. Humility is defined by an otherness, a focus out of yourself. Pride is an inwardness, and you can be proud by hating yourself or loving yourself. Humility is valuing others more than you value yourself even. That seems challenging, but it's only possible if your value of yourself is unshakable. Most of us build our identity falsely. We build our identity on our own. We talked about this last week. In our culture, you figure out who you are. You go on your own and decide internally who you are. Figure out who you are. And basically the way we define ourselves, who am I, is by what we do or have done. And ultimately it comes down to how we view ourselves or how others view us. We're constantly trying to evaluate how we view ourselves and how others view us. But most of us intuit that just simply turning internally to figure out who you are isn't big enough. And so what we do is we try to grab hold of something bigger than ourselves. You try to find your identity in something bigger, like a career or your family. A number of articles have been written about how the new career culture builds into itself this idea that you are a lawyer, you are a financial analyst, and that's your identity. Some people push even beyond that and recognize they need something even bigger than their career. And so it's their nation or ethnicity or some cause or political party. That'll be big enough. Something bigger than me. Something that, that in which I can find myself. But most of our identities, when built on anything like that, are fairly fragile. We constantly need to have our identity affirmed and proven. If somebody attacks our party, our career, our whatever, they're attacking us. And We live constantly either ambitious, trying to get to some place where I know who I am and my life means something, or constantly guarded, having to guard ourselves from others who might hurt us. Every single person, as a result, becomes competition, or an asset to be used to get where I want to go, or a threat to my self-understanding and my purpose. In 1989, when the wall came down in Eastern Europe and people went into Romania, a number of reporters walked into orphanages there these institutionalized orphanages. And what they found were children at very young ages who had been neglected for years. They were being fed and changed, but not held, not sung to, not loved. There's a whole series of studies that have gone on looking at the impact of neglect, like emotional neglect or physical neglect on children. And you end up having uh, a whole gamut of intellectual and social and emotional and behavioral impacts that can be overcome but are pretty challenging. I saw, or read about one of those in the book and movie The Blind Side, which is about Michael Ower. I've told this story before, but Michael Ower grew up as this very large young man um, in Tennessee and was essentially a street kid because his mom was a drug addict a family at a local high school invited him into their home and he began to live with them. They, they adopted him, essentially. And eventually the mom found underneath of this large kid's 16-year-old's bed food. He was stashing food under his bed because he had lived so long with food insecurity. That neglect had caused him to be fearful and guarded. He had to constantly fend for himself. And even though the people taking care of him, the, the, the husband was the owner of like dozens of Taco Bell franchises and had millions of dollars, Michael feared his next meal might not be there. He had to protect himself, guard himself. Spiritually, many of us have an orphan mentality. We live fearing for our future, our next day, constantly unsure where we're going to get our next meal. So everyone is a threat to our food source. We fail to live as sons and daughters of the king, which is who we are. To live the great life, to be humble and selfless and sacrificially loving, we need to know whose we are, not just who we are. That involves having a gospel identity. In verse five, as as Paul's laying out what he wants them to do, and then he says, here's how you do it. In verse five, he says, "Um, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Um, But that's actually a bad translation. It's not have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. It's have a mind that is in Christ Jesus. Basically this, when you're relating to one another, Don't relate out of the basis of what you want to get or who you are. Relate out of your Christ mind. When you're thinking about yourself in relation to Christ, then relate to others. Several other translations and commentators put it that way, that the the vision there is to live out of a gospel identity. It's not do what Jesus did, go and die on a cross. It's realize who you are. Jesus died for you now live. And that's why in verse 1, he lays it out a little more clearly when he's encouraging them. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. He's not saying if you do, you know, because I don't think you do. He's saying, you do. You are united with Christ. The Spirit of God dwells in you, God doesn't just live in heaven. He lives in you. You are loved. You are fully loved. You know God. God knows and cares about you. You cannot be any more loved and valuable than you are in Christ. A gospel identity stands firmly knowing you are forgiven when the voice of guilt comes in, that you are a beloved child when the fear of shame comes in, that you are an heir of eternity when our anxieties and fears kick in. In Christ, this is saying, the same thing that the gospel says again and again, in Christ, if you are in Christ, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. Think about that. The Bible talks again and again about us being in Christ, okay? That we are clothed in Christ, and that we are sons of God. That's all language that should be reserved for Jesus. And that's the point. When God looks at you, he doesn't just see a student or a mom or a teacher. He sees Jesus. He doesn't just see your failures, your shame, your habitual sin. He sees Jesus. And the Spirit testifies to that. The Spirit affirms God's Word in our hearts and reminds us you are loved. But Satan whispers in our ear, no, you're not. You know what you did the other day? The liar, the deceiver, constantly whispers in our ear about our false identity. You have a lot of reason to be shamed if people knew what happened to you. Yeah, you confessed your sin to God, but are you really forgiven? I mean, really? Really? If you don't protect your future, who will? Doubt God. Doubt what God says. Yes, you know better than God. What you know about yourself is more true than what God says. That's the lie of Satan, building on your false identity, an identity that is not built in Jesus Christ. The gospel says, find your identity in me. What God says about us is more true than what we think or feel or observe. From there, we can find freedom and power. The more, the more your mind and heart are fixed on Christ and what he's done for you and how he loves you, the more it will drive you out of yourself. So the more you focus on Christ, the more it will drive you out of you and towards God and therefore towards others. I've seen this in my own life. So when I take time to sit and pray and seek God, sort of to worship, do you know what happens? When I'm taking time to sit and pray and seek God and worship, God puts other people's names on my mind. Huh, The rest of the time I'm thinking about me, what I'm going to eat, what I'm going to do later, what time the game is on. But if I stop to worship God, he pushes me out of myself and puts the names of people on my mind to pray for, to call, to write a note to, to see if they can get together. I start loving other people when I start worshiping God. The truly great life is not seeking your own, defining yourself, grabbing hold of whatever you want. It is gospel-driven selflessness and humility that cultivates a loving community, all aimed for the same thing, pulling in the same direction. We generally avoid this sort of deep community because we want to maintain our independence, or we only enter community to get something out of it for ourselves, but when, or to the extent that we believe that we are loved by God and his spirit dwells in us and that we have everything we need, true identity, true purpose, true love, then, then are we able to constantly look outside of ourselves to the needs of others, and extend grace, and forgiveness, and compassion, and generosity, and humility, and sacrifice. Then can we love as Christ loved. The truly great life went to a cross. And that's where we're going to find ours. On a cross. His and ours. Let's pray. God our Father, we are very fragile people, living with a lot of anxiety and shame and guilt. But your Son wasn't just an example, but was the way to true life. In his death, we are forgiven. In his resurrection, we have the hope of life. Through him, we are sons and daughters of the King, eternally valuable, loved, and able to love give us eyes and hearts and minds to see that this day. In Jesus' name, amen.